Hello everybody, welcome to the latest episode of Watch This Movie Mike. So, I've been uh, deciding on opening up the show with a movie recommendation, so I'm going to keep with that tradition here. Given the circumstances, I was about to go full ham and just recommend a movie that was kind of an obvious choice. Uh, recently, with the passing of Olivia Newton-John, at the time of this recording, it happened a couple days ago, passed away at the age of 73. So... I actually kind of took it upon myself just to throw on grease while I was working in the background. Or, excuse me, while I was working, I decided to just throw it on in the background. You know, it's kind of one of those movies where most people have probably seen at least once in their life. Musicals tend to kind of not be my uh, my, my go-to genre, but, uh, you know, when they're done well, they're done well. It's hard to deny. And... Um, I hadn't seen this one in a long time. There's several memorable songs in it that you've heard throughout the years. I think even a couple of them get radio play on their own. And uh, so I figured, you know, hey, what, what, I guess better, I mean, in a morbid way, right? What better time to revisit it than now? So I threw it on. You know, I, I find it enjoyable. It, it's, it's fun. Uh, Travolta and Olivia Newton-John have that chemistry going on. And I like all the side characters, all the high school uh, settings and uh, you know it, it was made in 78 but it's kind of taking place during like the greasers 50s era so I, think, I thought the costume design was really well done in the movie and like I said the music's catchy so I mean it, it, for that kind of movie I would say check it out and it's part of the reason why I would recommend everyone go out of your comfort zone when you're taking in any form of like art I guess but in this case movies it could just be one single movie of a subgenre that turns you on to that new genre. Or not. It, maybe not even necessarily, but it, it's still a good movie. You watch it in a vacuum. Like, you don't have to watch Grease and then suddenly decide, okay, now I'm going to seek out every musical. But sometimes, like those classics that are like highly rated by critics and audiences, there's a reason for it. And sometimes they transcend um, fans of just the genre itself. And you get the crossover appeal. And I think Grease is one of those movies, and justifiably so. But yeah, I, I said more on it than I thought I was going to say. I, I, I only really went into Grease in the first place to say, hey, that's actually not the recommendation for this episode. Maybe maybe because Olivia Newton-John passed that, I just felt like, hey, maybe I should bring it up. But anyways, my recommendation for this episode is a movie uh, from 2020 called Shiva Baby. If that title kind of seems kind of uh, odd to you, uh, let's just get out there. This this is a movie that takes place at a Jewish funeral. So the term Shiva, which people might not know, is Shiva refers to like the, I think it's seven. I think it's either seven or ten days of mourning when like someone in your family passes. And it's like kind of like the process of mourning um, rather than just having like a funeral day or whatever there's kind of customs and traditions behind that. I'm not super, you know, informed on it. I, I just knew elements, which I'll get into why in a sec. But, yeah, so this uh, this is definitely a comedy. Um, but it's a specific style of comedy. You have to like that awkward, uncomfortable situation comedy where, you know, anytime the, the main character kind of gets a, a rest or a break from just feeling 
overwhelmed, it doesn't last long. But uh, yeah, so th- so this takes place at a Jewish funeral, and it, it's it's a college. I think she's a college student. Yeah, she's I think she's a college student that just graduated, and she's looking to go to some type of graduate school. And basically, at this funeral, she runs into a sugar daddy or her current sugar daddy, and I think it's an ex girlfriend or like ex friend that maybe she messed around with but I, I it seems like it might have been an ex-girlfriend so anyways you know she's trying to navigate the funeral where it seems like the funerals for like a you know a relative that she wasn't necessarily super close to just based on some of the awkward conversations that like people that did know the person well tried to have with her but you know how that goes with the big families but uh you know i i found this movie very funny in the uncomfortable way I think it's very well written. It's and it's actually pretty short too. At only an hour and seventeen minutes, it's a quick watch. It's currently sitting at seven point one on IMDb, so take that for what it's worth. I know IMDb scores aren't the be all end all, but uh, so interesting story behind how I discovered this movie because, like I said, twenty twenty, it's been out a couple years. It was never on my radar. I think maybe on. HBO Max, I might have scanned by it, and, you know, I, I didn't think much of it, but what what led to this was, um, this past week, we were supposed to do Bodies, Bodies, Bodies on Fresh Cuts, but it turns out that last week, it was only released in a limited uh, release, and then this week, it's opening up wide, so I, I kind of was looking up Bodies, 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 and looking at the cast, and, you know, it's mostly younger uh, people that I haven't seen a lot from, so I was like, oh, let me see what this cast has done. And uh, it went to uh, Rachel Sanat. I think that's how to pronounce it. There was like a uh, a little blurb in the article about how like, oh, you know, you were in this funny comedy called Shiva Baby. And it kind of light bulb went off like, Shiva Baby, why does that sound familiar? Because I had scrolled by it on um, HBO Max previously. And so I was like, you know, well, people seem to like it. Let me look up look it up and look into it a little and i was like whoa this is highly rated like so i decided to give it a chance and uh i i I threw it on while i was working and i actually stopped or i paused it and i was like nah i need to watch this like when i can give it its full attention because i'm actually laughing i'm laughing and cringing at the same time just because of the awkward style or the awkward situation i would say that the characters put in pretty much for the entire movie so i was like yeah i want to watch this 100 percent focused and uh you know i was talking to some people and I was thought, you know, maybe because I, you know, I grew up one half side of the family Jewish. So while we were never like big, huge, detailed into like all the customs and traditions, I remember enough of it to relate to some of these stuff, like the way the funerals presented it. Very familiar. Uh, The movie was smart enough to make it like, you know, about the specific types of food, uh, the way people kind of interact the um just like the customs going on like i generally could relate to it so you know i was thinking like maybe i'm giving the movie too much credit because of that personal you know to relating to it on a different level but after talking to some people it's like no the movie's just well written and funny regardless of that I, i think people maybe that are familiar with the setting yeah, they might get that extra element out of it, but I, I recommend this one to everybody. Like I said, it's on HBO Max, so it's it's uh, accessible. That would be my recommendation for this movie. I guess I could give a side recommendation to Grease, because I would say for anyone who hasn't seen it, or if you haven't seen it in a long time, watch it again. And, you know, if you have surround sound, crank it, because I think the music's good. But yeah, the official 
recommendation for this uh, episode is Shiva Baby. So uh, with that, I'll get into a little uh, little housekeeping. The latest episode of Fresh Cuts was on Resurrection with Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth. And, you know, if, if you like episodes where people vehemently disagree about what they thought of the movie, that's probably a good episode to dig into. Uh, my co-host, uh, Mr. Venom, me and him disagree. In in some ways, I mean, you, you, you'll have to listen to the episode to understand what I mean. And then the latest episode of No More Room in Hell, which was number 47, covering The Haunting and House on Haunted Hill, the originals, uh, the, are, you know, the original releases of both, um, that is out now, too. And, uh, yeah, so that kind of gets you up to the present in what, what else is out from me. And, uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it for the opening segment. So watch Shiva Baby and uh, watch Grease, too. So it's a bonus, a bonus uh, recommendation. But with that, uh, I'm going to shut the hell up now and we can get to the show. I am joined by Brian Sammons. And uh, you'll be hearing what his pick is shortly. So let's get to the show. All right, we are here with our guest for this episode. Uh, you might recognize the last name. It matches our guest from the previous episode, and there's a good reason for that. So I will introduce him right now. It's Brian Sammons. Brian, what's up? How is it going? Hey, Mike. How are you doing? Um, <laughs> it's going okay. It's thunderstorming here, so <laughs> I might lose power, but, you know, barring that, everything's going a-okay. Yeah, it still always kind of surprises me uh, maybe not surprises me but i always have to get a reminder that in some parts of the country and the world i guess it actually rains and thunderstorms during the summer because out here it's like a <laughs> complete dry heat like we might have a surprise overcast day once in a while but it's still pretty dry but yeah you're in an area that i guess you get thunderstorms during the summer eh? oh yeah uh we've been pretty dry for about a month or so but today it just totally let loose, and we got lightning, thunder, rain coming down in sheets. It's a hell of a thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess you at least get a little show going on. I guess mm-hmm. lightning's always kind of fun. I guess as long as it's like far enough out in the distance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, you know, so I've kind of just had the happenstance where the first two shows and with this one. I've known the guest for a good amount of time, not exactly, you know, someone I'm brand new to. We we go back pretty far. I I, I guess two of the only people that uh, outmatch that, I guess, are Jamie and Doug Tilly, my first uh, two episodes of guests. But, Brian, you actually came on uh, the old show, Evil Episodes, I think initially as, like, a guest maybe, and we just kept pulling you in. And then eventually it was like, well... I think at this point, uh, given all the circumstances, do you just want to be a co-host? I can't even remember how it was asked. It was so long ago. <laughs> yeah, um, it was something like that. Uh, I believe I was a guest for some Dexter uh, episodes. And so we finished out a season. And by that time, I was already 
uh, seen Jamie, so she was like, hey, you just want to do the show? And I was like, yeah, sure, and the rest is history. <laughs> yep, um, and yeah, you were you were there to cover all sorts of stuff. I mean, I, we got all through Tales from the Dark Side of most of Monsters, so I always tell people, like, one day we'll complete the last season because I think we mm-hmm. just that's the only one we didn't do, but there's always potential for it to be done there. But, you know, for for those that aren't familiar with Brian, with Brian Sammons, uh, obviously you're a big horror fan. You do a lot of horror podcasting, which we'll get into in a little bit. But um, how did you kind of get your if you've been a horror fan for life, was there something that kind of triggered it young and how did you kind of thrust yourself into the scene, I guess? Well, I mean, that's why I picked this movie we'll be talking about later, is this definitely was my cherry popper. Um, As a kid, I was always afraid of being afraid. I remember once as a real young kid lying in bed awake, and out in the living room, my older brother... My mom and my dad, they were watching one of the Omen movies on TV. I forget which one. And just hearing the music freaked me out. You know, that whole, Damien, ho, 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 (laughs) you know. And I was lying in bed going, oh, my God, what's going on? And uh, I've always been that way. When I was, as a kid, I was definitely afraid of roller coasters. I would see them and go, oh, that's too high, and they go too fast, and you know, if I die, if I go on them, I know I'll die. My head will explode or, you know, it'll come off the rails or whatever. And then I rode one and I absolutely fell in love with them. Uh, I'm a roller coaster junkie now. And that's pretty much how it was of horror movies. I was afraid of what they would do to me. I don't know why. I don't know where I built that up. But I was like, oh, horror movies are so scary, blah, blah, blah. And then at a young age, I was kind of like almost forced to watch uh, this movie, and I totally fell in love with it. I was blown away. I came home the next day, told my mom all about it, made her go take me to the local video store, and I rented a whole bunch, and that's where it began. And because of my love of horror movies, it began my love of horror books. My mother would be reading, I mean, I still remember, she was reading Stephen King's Cujo. And I was like, oh, hey, that's a scary book, right? Stephen King, I've heard of him. And she's like, yeah, it's very scary. And this is when I was just starting getting in movies. And I was like, okay, how many people have died so far? And she's like, well, nobody's died yet. And she was a good ways into the book. And by this time, I was getting weaned off slasher films. I'm like, how the hell are you that long, (laughs) that far into the book, and nobody's died, and that is somehow scary? And she's like, well, you're just going to have to read some Stephen King and find out. So I picked up The Shining. It was the first, you know, grown-up slash adult book I've ever read, and I loved it. So that began my love of horror literature. So one thing led to the other, and... Quite frankly, you know, it's really shaped my life. It's made me the person I am today. Um, It's why, you know, as a career, I work and create and deal with horror entertainment. I always have. You know, I've been doing reviews for movies and books and all that for 25 years now because I'm so damn old. 
<laughs> I've been uh, writing short stories and having them published. I now work for a number of publishers where I edit horror anthologies, books, collections of short stories by various authors, and, you know, they come out. Uh, horror is in my blood. I mean, all you got to do is come to my house and look around. And that's one of the great things, because Jamie is a huge horror fan. And up until I met her, I used to have all my horror stuff, all my posters and, you know, figures and whatever, stuffed into my library with all my books and all that. And that, that place was just packed. And the rest of the house was kind of like normal, because, you know, you didn't want to scare the girls away. <laughs> You know, right. <laughs> so when I met her, she was like, this stuff's awesome. We're bringing it out into our into the living room. And now our whole house is just covered with posters and knickknacks and art and uh, so much horror. And I totally love it because it's such a integral part of who I am. It's been that way since. I was about uh, 12 years old when I watched this movie, and from then on out, I've just consumed everything horror, and I just love it. Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to horror fans, I'm sure a lot of us have, like, similar origins with it. You relating your your story about kind of uh, catching something on the TV that, like, a parent or parents were watching – I remember distinctly it was a similar situation for me just a few years after that. My parents were watching Tales from the Crypt, the first season. And back when it originally aired on HBO, I think, you know, it would probably come on about the time that was like my bedtime. But there happened to be one evening where I was just being your typical kid that didn't want to go to sleep. And I was kind of sneaking down the stairs and kind of worked my way around the, I guess, the perimeter of the interior of the house to where I could see what was on the TV screen, but they couldn't see me watching it. And I think it was the season one finale with Joe Pantaleon, where he was playing like the escape artist with the nine lives because he did some voodoo thing with the cat or whatever. Yeah, and he like miscounted how many lives he had left, I think. Yeah, because the cat Um, originally lost one when he died mm-hmm. and they took the powers. So instead of having nine lives uh, to play around with, he only had eight. <laughs> right, <laughs> yep. Exactly. And I want to say that when I was kind of watching it, I didn't even know it was like a tales from the crypt episode. It was just some kind of like creepy story. Um, you know, cause the, the character of the escape artist wasn't exactly, or he was like kind of like a sleazy guy to begin with. So uh, I thought it was really cool and it, it kind of sparked a little interest there. And then as far as your history with like uh, horror books or starting with Stephen King is similar to me as well. Um, we, when we would go to family functions, uh, my grandparents' house, well, one, uh, my aunt also lived there and she had a big Stephen King collection and I think I had, like, heard of Stephen King just being, like, who he is, obviously. The yeah. name crosses the mind, but I had never read anything because I was still pretty young. And my aunt, just with her huge collection, she just was like, well, you know, I've read all these and they're just sitting on the shelf. So you can start borrowing, like, I'm in a couple at a time. And I I want to say Christine might have been the first one I read. Um, it, it, 
it's hard to remember, but I, I'm, I know Christine was one of the first ones. And I think I had already seen the movie or at least bits and pieces of it. And I was kind of amazed at like uh, learning the, the similarities and differences, because that was like one of my first kind of just real life uh, lessons of like how they kind of change and either add stuff or take stuff out for the movie. And I thought Christine was a pretty good adaption but yeah. even still there was like you know you see the little differences and i always found that interesting and as a as like a young young kid it, it's like that was kind of one of the first eye-opening experiences like oh so just because it says it's based on a book doesn't mean it's going to be a hundred percent like the book oh yeah and uh for me the shining is an interesting case because that was my first stephen king book like i said that was my first real book and uh I loved it. I still do. I've read it about four or five times over the years. Every so often I just go back to it. And yet I love the Stanley Kubrick film, The Shining, but the book and the movie are like totally different. And I can see why Stephen King wouldn't like the movie and all that, but I love both the movie and the book about equally, but for very different reasons. So that's more like perhaps the only book I know of that I've read and I like the movie just as much, even though the movie is very different. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes to show, like, an adaption that that varies from the book or the source material a lot. If it's still in capable hands, it can still produce something great. You know, you, oh, yeah. you just have to have the right people that are doing it. So now, you know, now that we got kind of got your history into into horror like what what are you doing currently because i know you're still involved you said you're working i think in like the publishing the editing because you're you're big in the cthulhu mythos still lovecraft stuff and you're still heavily involved in that correct yeah uh lovecraft is one of my favorite authors uh i the first thing i ever wrote for publication was some scenarios for the call of cthulhu role-playing game um they actually collected them and put them out in a book and all that, and that was really cool. So I've done that for a number of years. Just every so often I get an idea in my head, and it it fits more of a game scenario than it does a short story or anything like that. So I just go ahead and, you know, knock out a scenario. But uh, I then started writing short fiction, and I was lucky to get some of that published in various uh, magazines and books. And then one day, quite by chance, I fell into editing my own book. Um, me and a friend, we were writing a, a novella together for this one collection of four novellas, and the editor dropped out. So then he was like, hey, you know, we need somebody to do this. Why don't we just do it? So me and him knocked the book out ourselves. And then from then on, I just started doing it again and again and again. I mean, to date, I have 30 anthologies out with two more just waiting in the wings due to come out soon. Uh, I've been very successful at that, thank God, knock on wood. And uh, I always look at it as almost how I would picture a film director. Because when I do a book, I can't do it by myself. And just like a film... You can't make a film all by yourself. You need actors, and you need sound men, and you need, you know, uh, director of photography, and you need special effects and all that stuff. That's how I see these books I do. Almost to a one, 
all the anthologies I've published have been based on my idea. So I assemble the authors. I tell them what I'm looking for. They then send me stories. I read them and decide which ones are going into the books. And sadly, I have to reject some as well. And then, you know, I work with the authors to I'm more of a story editor than like a proofreader or a copy editor. Uh, I'm more interested in how the story flows, how the characters get along, stuff like that plot where copy editors are very much make sure the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and they're doing all the technical stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very important, too. And I try to do that when I'm doing my work, but. That's like a whole different breed. There's people that are just excellent at that, where I think I'm pretty good at the story editing stuff. For me, story is king, be it a movie, a video game, you know, whatever. Everything starts with story. It is the base upon which everything else is built. And if you don't have a good story to begin with, you're going to have something shitty at the end. Yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like was your... Before you uh, kind of fell into editing your first uh, your first novel or book, what, did you have kind of a background leading up to that, or was it more like a DIY? The circumstance says it, and it's going to be trial by error going forward, and you just got better at it as you went. It was mostly the latter. Uh, I mean, I did write a few stories of my own. I like I said, they got published and all that. And I still write my own stuff occasionally now. Most of the time I am more in, involved and busy with editing these various books. But you know, I still try to keep my own stuff alive and my own ideas coming. Uh one day I have to knuckle down and, you know, try to knock out a novel or two. Uh I haven't had the time, and quite frankly, that's kind of daunting, but uh, I've done pretty much everything else. I've done short stories, I've done novellas, I've done RPG campaigns, I've even had one of my stories picked up by a motion picture company. They optioned it, and <laughs> they've <laughs> been optioning it for like eight years now, but they keep renewing the option, they keep saying they want to do it, so you know they keep paying me, I figure... That must mean something, I hope. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, hopefully there's some type of retainer involved with them keep, <laughs> to keep renewing the option, you know? Well, yeah, every year they got to pay me a little something just to keep the option alive. So, hey, it's money, it's, you know, and I don't have to do anything. But at this point, I'd rather forgo the money and just have them bring out the movie already. I would, you know, love to see my name on the big screen. Yeah, because uh, I assume that if they they didn't renew the option or however the process works, then it kind of goes back into like free agency almost. Like, okay, now anyone can kind of swoop yeah. it up if they want, right? Yeah, if they don't renew the option, then I get all rights back to it, and then I can do whatever I want with it. Cool. Well, I mean, maybe you'll have to go into some DIY uh, filmmaking in a couple of years. <laughs> I hope not, because I really – I mean – I have no desire to do that. I am a storyteller. I'm a writer. That's what I do. Even when I'm, like I said, when I'm editing anthologies, I see them as this is my idea. This is this is how I want the book to be. So I work with the other authors to make sure they give me what I want. So every book I've ever done, I have to be 100% satisfied with it or it just doesn't come out. Yeah, I mean, I, 
that makes perfect sense. And when when you would write stories, would it just kind of start with an idea that sparked, or and you would just kind of try to build it from there? Because you know you hear from all sorts of people that do uh, different types of writings, like methods and all sorts of tips on how to do it. Uh, is it just kind of something? like what what sparks your uh creativeness in developing a story oh it can be many things uh i've actually done one or two stories based on dreams i'll wake up and have a vivid dream or nightmare and go you know what that'd be pretty cool and i'll write it down other times an editor of a book somebody else's book or a magazine editor or whatever will go hey I'm looking for these type of stories. Pretty much what I do with other authors, they do for me. And they kind of tell me, I want, you know, a story about this genre. You know, werewolves or zombies or futuristic or the Old West or whatever. So then you got to start thinking about what I can do with the parameters they gave me. And then you just formulate it in your head and sometimes you get a good idea and you write it down other times you get nothing and you just have to tell them sorry can't come up with anything yeah i mean that makes i'm sure there's plenty of ideas that seem good at the <laughs> at the jump and then they just go nowhere <laughs> well yeah that does happen sometimes you do go down a blind alley you think you have something really cool and you're like oh boy i can't wait to get to this and then like midway through or so you're like you know what this kind of sucks <laughs> and so i always save that stuff and i i have in the past come back to some of my older ideas and now with newer or I should say older but more experienced eyes, I look at it and go, ah, okay, I'll do this. And so you can breathe life back into those stories. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, so fast forwarding to like the present time, you and Jamie are actually still out there podcasting. And I know your, your uh, current show has a little bit of elements from the past show, Integrated into the new show so why don't you tell everyone um about that show how it kind of came to be and what's kind of currently going on with it well originally many years ago i had the idea of doing a podcast called the abcs of hidden horror and the idea was we would go through the alphabet and there was three of us there was me jamie and dave z and we would each pick a movie that began with that letter of the alphabet. Like A, my pick was Absentia. B might be, I don't know, Blood Diner, and so on and so forth. And the caveat was they have to be somewhat hidden. They don't have to be super obscure, like no one's ever seen this movie, but they got to be either little known or lesser known or something that just hasn't been talked about in a long time. So, originally, my idea was, we'll do this, we'll do it like every other week, we'll get it done in a year, and we'll be done. But then, for various things, that dragged out for like four years, and uh, we finally finished up, and that was it, we were all done. Then, a couple months later, Jamie, because I got into podcasting because of her. She's an old-school podcaster. She was there from the beginning. Uh, she's done it for years and years and years. She likes doing it. She's very good at it. And she was like, hey, let's do another show. And so that's how the new show came around. 
And our new show is called uh, Horror in the House of Salmons. She wanted to call it that. It's kind of like a play on the old 40s and 50s type of horror movies. And now it's, we still do the ABCs thing with just me and her. It's now just a two-person show. But then we do a segment called Bumps in a Night where we just talk about various things, uh, folklore, monsters, trivia, whatever strikes our fancy. And then I have a, we have a large home movie collection, not home movies, but like Blu-rays, DVDs. And because again, I've been doing reviews, uh, film reviews for like 25 years. You amass quite a collection after doing that for a while. And one day she was like, hey, I got an idea. Wouldn't it be fun if we sat down and watched every one of our movies from A to Z? And we have over, you know, close to 4,000 movies now. (laughs) I was like, no, I don't want to do that. You know, I like (laughs) having these movies in case I want to watch something, but just to march through them would be quite the undertaking. And she was like, let's do it. So we started that. Uh, I think that was about four years ago or three years ago, and we are in the seas right now. So <laughs> it's uh, I don't think we'll ever be done with it. It is just such a daunting task, you know. It doesn't sound like a lot until you start thinking about well, there's only you know 365 days in a year, so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there, there's nothing that kind of w- wakes you up to the realization of how many movies you had and how much how much questionable buying you've probably done over the years. And actually just scanning like your movie rack or however you have the setup and realizing, OK, I'm going to have to watch these ones, even though outside of doing it for the show, there's real no interest to watch it right now. Then it kind of becomes real. <laughs> well, the real big uh, sticking point is I have a lot of these. Uh, like 50 movie collections and 25 movie collections. And I got them and I kept them because there are some rare movies on there that I don't have otherwise. So if I'm specifically looking for this movie, I have a database where I know exactly where to go and find it, put it on, boom, done, good. But a lot of those like big 50 packs have a lot of garbage in them, too. Stuff I would not watch normally. I don't want to watch. But because we're doing this, we kind of have to, and that's been very painful. Uh, case in point, we've only done one 50 pack. We have one, two, three, four, five more to do, and I've just been boycotting them because there's so much crap on there there are some good movies there are some legit classics but there's a lot of garbage too oh yeah i i (laughs) i could imagine um i don't buy physical media nearly in the numbers that i used to but i remember those days when i would show up at like fries or a best buy and oh look it's a compilation of like 20 movies with a subtitle of whatever and Oh, I bet there's going to be so many gems in here that I haven't seen in a lot of times. No, there's a reason that they were thrown in here for cheap. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And I'm pretty good about not keeping stuff I don't like. I've done, I've had a lot of movies sent to me because, again, I review them. So, and I watch them and go, you know what, that kind of sucks. And I just usually 
you know, hand them off to friends and family and stuff like that. If I know I have no desire to ever watch this again, then I just get rid of it. I don't just hang on to it just to hang on to it. Uh, I figure somebody out there might get some enjoyment out of this. So, you know, have at it. Yeah, I'm trying to, like, keep myself because I, I really slowed down during the Blu-ray era. So there's a lot of movies that I still have standard DVD that are now getting 4K releases. And I feel a little bit less guilty upgrading because I kind of nearly skipped most a of the Blu-ray era. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, when Blu-ray first hit, I was, like, steadily buying. But, like, a year or two into it, I was just like, why am I even doing this but I, I find myself even now with like the supposed more discipline it's like i catch myself like looking for sales or building a wish list and you know checking it more often than i think and it's just it's just one of those things it's it's hard it, it's hard to do casually it's almost like you're either in on buying or you're out because yeah. once you start it's kind of like the funko pop thing it's like oh i'll just get a you to like decorate the fireplace mantle and next thing you know it's like the whole thing's lined with them <laughs> i've i've been lucky with doing the review things for as long as i have been uh the majority of our collection i got in for review because otherwise i'd probably be broke so and that's still why i mean by and large i don't do reviews all that much anymore i still do but not to the extent that i was and now i'm very picky if it doesn't, if I don't think I'll be interested in it, or a lot of time I do product reviews, not necessarily reviewing the movie, but reviewing the Blu-ray or the DVD or whatever that it comes out on. So in that case, I'll probably already be aware of the movie or even have seen it at the theater, so I know if I want to cover it or not. Yeah, that makes total, total sense. Because this way I don't get all, like, the sci-fi channel, you know, shark movies and all that stuff. Oh, Trust yeah. Me, I, I, I've been offered them. <laughs> I am offered stuff constantly, but I'm very peculiar and very particular with what I, uh, what I accept for, to do, to review. Oh, for sure, yeah. There was a, a time, like, many years ago when... I would be getting a lot of those emails about like, hey, this is coming for a review. Click here and give it give it a watch. And I'd kind of look over it. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know if you want me to do that. Like, yeah, there's there's people out there that will do it and you'll get the reaction you're hoping for. I, I don't know if I'm the right person for that. <laughs> well, there is a thing where people do like hate reviews. And I get that because it is fun to write a very scathing review and just totally rip something apart and that's that can be fun but it gets very old very fast at least for me i'd much rather write good reviews about stuff i like and tell people hey this is a good movie you need to check it out um then just uh totally shred something for lols or whatever yeah and especially like now you know everyone is in different places in their life and for me now it's it's also a matter of just like lack of time you know oh yeah for me sometimes with just parenthood and family life it's like i'm lucky if i just get to sit down and watch a movie i want to watch at night before i'm too tired right and to think that like oh how much other things do i want to take on that i'm just really like skimming any free minute of the day to like accomplish 
Well, sadly, that's how I am now, by and large, with reading. I read so much for the books I do and various anthologies. And I also just work as an editor for Dark Regions Press. So I'm constantly reading for my job that reading for fun is something I very rarely get to do. Because by the end of the day, I'm so burnt out on reading, I just don't want to do it anymore. So it's hard to enjoy that. And that kind of sucks. I would love to have more time and just more gumption, I guess, to read for pleasure. But uh, sadly, right now, most of my reading is for the various things I do. And those are good, and I have fun, but it's not the same thing. I don't get to read exactly what I want to. I have to read the stuff I have to, if that makes sense. Uh, Perfect sense, yep. (laughs) All right, well, now that we've caught up with uh, Brian some, and hopefully people know him a little better, and we'll be seeking him out, of course, for his, his services and horror opinions and everything else, uh we always ask a guest on this show to bring a movie for us both to watch and discuss uh there's pretty much no rules about what they can pick um so i kind of explained all that to brian ahead of time of course so uh he could list off the movie it has been watched and it will be discussed so brian uh, why don't you let everybody know what movie you picked for the episode uh friday the 13th the final chapter from 1984. Three times before, you have felt the terror known the madness lived the horror but this is the one you've been screaming for Friday the 13th the final chapter Jason is back he moves like a shadow dark and silent. Sorry, you change your mind? He never utters a word. He doesn't even seem to breathe. Where the hell's the car scroll? He simply, mindlessly, <laughs> mercilessly, <laughs> kills. But now, Jason's reign of terror is over. Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Jason's unlucky day. This was the cherry popper for me. This was the movie uh, that started everything for me. It has such a special place in my heart. I've seen it damn near like a thousand times. I love it every time I see it. I think it's the best in the long Friday 13th franchise, and I think it is the best slasher ever made. And that could be looking through, you know, rose-colored glasses and all that, but, you know, I stand by that. 
uh, how I came to watch it was one day my older brother and I, we were actually spending the night over my aunt and uncle's house. My uncle is specifically. My aunt and my mom had to do something. I forget what, but they were out doing that. So it was me, my brother, my uncle, and my two cousins, uh, both girls, both older than me. And since we were spending a night, they were like, hey, let's go to a video store and rent movies. And they rented Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and Sleepaway Camp. That was the second horror movie I ever watched. And I love that movie, too, but that didn't affect me like Friday did. Maybe because it was my first, and I just remember sitting there watching that. I mean, I was, like, glued to the screen. And this movie was just so... So much more than I ever thought. It had great kills. It had, you know, nudity. And as a 12-year-old boy, I was like, woohoo! <laughs> it had a, a memorable... Well, all the characters, I think, are memorable, but especially Jason frickin' Voorhees. And just, it... It blew me away. So, I mean... I don't know if everybody has that one movie that changed everything for them, but for me, I do, and that's this one. Yeah, and I think Friday the 13th, it's, it's, it can be argued that it's unique in the sense, as a franchise, I mean that... And of course, opinions will be differing on this. Obviously, with a franchise this big and as successful as it is, people are going to all have their personal favorites. But I kind of feel like at least I, I think I, I still personally feel this way that it's a franchise that seemed at, to kind of get better as it went along. You know, usually it's always about the original. It's like, OK, everything is built off how great the original was. And I think the first Friday the 13th is good. It is a good starting point, but you know, I'm, I'm very partial to part three myself, but four is definitely like up there uh, as, as I, I consider it one of the best ones as well. I, 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 to me, it's hard to argue that four isn't the best. I mean, all things considered, it's just that I have weird, you know, weird reasons, I guess, for liking, uh three uh, a little bit more but you know that aside i i think a lot of elements of friday the 13th the final chapter or part four for those uh uninitiated um i think when it, at least when it comes to that first group of friday the 13th I, I include five in it because i i still feel like five tried to go for the field but i think especially the character of jason if if you were to describe the Jason Voorhees character and you wanted to give someone an, an example, I think part four is really the go-to, at least for this era, because once he becomes undead, it's a little, it's, it's a little different. It's still the same Jason, but you know, he, he has some different attributes, but I, I would think part four is, is kind of like the ultimate depiction of Jason. Would you, would you agree with that? Yes. Uh, part four, Jason, played by Ted White, is my favorite Jason of all time. Everybody goes on and on about Kane Hodder, and I like Kane Hodder. I like him as a person, and I like what he did with the character, and I really like the fact that he championed the character and was so proud to play Jason. Unfortunately, I just think most of the movies he happened to be Jason in weren't that good. 
this one, this is Jason at the top of his form. He looks the best. He acts the best for me. He just has this aura of menace about him and anger. I mean, you watch this movie and he's always growling and stuff when he's fighting the, you know, the final girl. And he is just, he is vicious. He is like, this is the most apex predator I think he ever was. And everything he does is done with maximum amount of violence and carnage. And there's been lots of good Jasons. And I like all the Friday 13 movies, at least up to part six. I love all of them, you know, not necessarily equally, but I give all of them. Well, I rate movies with the old Netflix scale of a five, meaning I love it. Uh, I don't believe in numeric values. I just, you know, did I love the movie? Did I like the movie? Did I dislike the movie? And Friday the 13th, one through six, they're all great. Even part five, and a lot of people come down on that because that's not the real Jason and all that stuff. It's still fun. It's still, you know, a guy in the woods in a hockey mask killing people in creative ways and, you know, horny, stupid teenagers. And it has all the elements you need for a good Friday 13th. But out of all of them, part four, you know, stands head and shoulders above the rest. Yeah, and I I definitely agree. I think um, four, he definitely feels like he becomes the ultimate predator Jason predator Jason uh, three. He, I feel like his mannerisms in part three, it's almost more like a old man, get off my lawn type of lurking yes. Jason. There's that like scene he, in when he walks, when you first see him with the new hockey mask and he comes out walking on the dock and you got the girl in the pond going, Oh, I dropped your wallet. And he grabs a spear gun. He aims it, shoots her. And then just the way he walks away, he like casually just throws the harpoon gun down and he's just moseying. It seems like it's just, well, just another day. And that's cool, too. That's, you know, that says something about Jason caring so little about life. He's just like, ho hum. And I like that. But in part four, he is aggressively out to get you. I mean, he's nothing as lackadaisical. Nothing is just ho hum. He, you know, I am going to kill you. And, you know, I'm going to make it hurt. And you will know my name is the Lord and all that stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Like when I, when I watch that scene in part three, it, it it's like he's more kind of lumbering, almost like a get off my lawn. Like, yeah. Like, what are you kids doing out there? Stop messing around. And then he kind of just like walks off, you know. Uh, back to whatever part three Jason does in his spare time before it's, it's aggressive. It's mean spirited. It's, you know, I'm going to, I'm not just going to like, uh, throw, like, I'm not just going to grab you. I'm going to throw you through the window Mm -hmm. (laughs) off the balcony. I'm going to bust through the door. Like it, I feel like this is kind of the definitive, like for someone, like I said earlier, if you haven't seen a Friday the 13th and you just heard Jason described the Jason in the final chapter is the one that's going to most accurately represent, uh, I think the lore of Jason, at least until he becomes undead. Cause I think even though I personally like, you know, the first five 
style more. I think there are people that like the like uber uber zombie indestructible Jason, but I like kind of like the human weirdo element. To yeah, I the prefer. Jason again. I prefer living Jason to zombie Jason. I like zombie Jason fine. Uh, part six, I absolutely love, but between the two, I'll always pick the living guy because just there's more to it. There's more sneakiness. There's more thought behind it. And he's still, I mean, when he's a zombie, you can just explain every sort of uh, strange, almost supernatural ability of just, well, he's a zombie, so he can do that. Here, you don't know. I mean, there's that whole thing, that holdout from the first movie was, did he drown in the lake as a kid? Or, you know, was he just hiding out in the woods and for some reason his mom didn't know it? He never went home and they never ran into each other. But on the night she was killed, he happened to see it and blah, 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 blah. And then there's the fact that he takes so much damage. You can stab Jason. You can, you know, hit him in the head with an axe. You can do whatever, and he just keeps coming back. Especially in this one, the final chapter, it starts off with him going to the morgue and him coming out. (laughs) He's like, no, you're not going to kill me. I will not die. And then this is the first movie where Jason does the Kool-Aid man through the door. Something other movies would do later on. But this was the first time Jason got so pissed he just disgit- <laughs> he just disintegrated this door as he plowed through it. Mm-hmm. I, I think you know it, it's also one of like the most famous clips used in like uh, any of like the horror clip documentaries about like oh scariest moments or most vicious attacks or whatever. Like you always see that clip of him just disintegrating the door on the way through it. Oh yeah, and I lo- there's a part in there. It's very subtle. It's very quick. But it just speaks to the character. When he comes through the door, he immediately bows up. Now, that's a southern expression I learned from Jamie. Uh, Basically, like if you were about to get into a fight with somebody, you would, you know, square your shoulders and you would puff out your chest. And, you know, you make yourself look big and you get ready to do action. He does that. As soon as he comes through this door, he automatically bows up. He's like, oh, now you're in for it. (laughs) And I just love that. It's a very subtle, very quick thing. It's a very minor thing, but stuff like that just adds to his character for me. Mm -hmm. And something I do like about the human Jason, or alive Jason, I guess, is he does react to attacks, like even minor attacks. If If you cut him or hit him with something, he'll grunt and, yeah. and react accordingly as to where, you know, eventually he just becomes so indestructible that he's just walking through, like, shotgun blasts and stuff. Yeah, and that, you know, that's cool, too, and that's scary as well, but I just, I don't know, something about a human opponent. That's mm-hmm. like, uh, I remember when the Friday 13th remake came out, and he went back to live Jason after years of zombie Jason, and there were some people who actively, you know, oh, man, Jason don't run. It's like, did you ever watch the first four movies? Hell, even the fifth movie was a fake Jason, but he ran, too. It's not, you know, he he did that because he was a normal, well, not necessarily normal, but he was a living person. So, I mean, all these arbitrary ideas that you think of Jason, that's what came later. That's after a decade of movies and he's literally died and come back from the grave. Yeah, it, it's, 
exactly. Uh, uh, yeah, that's a good point. It, it, it's it's there's definitely like the first half of the franchise versus the second half, and I I do think like Undead Jason has merit, but it almost yeah. feels like that's how like you cap off the franchise with like the last one to say okay, look at this version. Uh, but I think it loses it loses effect a little bit as it goes, whereas the the first five are all kind of solid in their own way. Like I never get tired of watching the oh, first no. five. No, I can watch them again and again back to back, and I mean. Once somebody's a zombie, there ain't much they can do more to them. I mean, that's one thing about Jason X they did. They actually did something new with Jason, and they made him a cyborg. Now, some people think it's silly and stupid, whatever, but at least it was new. The first few Friday movies, not by design, I think by happenstance, but the character was always evolving and changing. In the first movie, he's a you know deformed little kid in the water, who could be dead or not, you don't know. Or it could just be a figment of your imagination. In the second one, he's a long-haired, hillbilly, wild man. In the third one, he's completely bald now, and he gets his iconic hockey mask. And in the fourth one, I just think that's the pinnacle of that Jason. Um, I think that's the best he was ever. And just, I like his growth as the movies go. Again, I don't think it was by design. It was just a happy coincidence, or more like a happy accident, as they kept making movies and making stuff up as they went along. Yeah, another element of the first handful of the franchise, I I gotta say, is the Manfredini score. Oh, yeah. To me, that's another thing that, like, never sat right with me in like some of the later entries is like either they modified it so much or just totally went away from it. But these first, I want to say it's still in the fifth one too. Um, As soon as like the, you know, the opening credits, whether you get like the uh, flashback to a previous movie or pretty early in each movie, you know, you just get like the little hints of it coming on. And to me that, it totally tells you, okay, I'm watching a Friday the 13th movie and these people know what they're doing. One of my problems with like modernizations of things is like, they don't look at details like that. That really sets kind of like the tone and the atmosphere to it. Because to me, sometimes more than actually like what's happening on the screen, it can be the score of a movie. That's the comfort food, right. Or comfort music, I guess. Like I, I, Sometimes I'll put on a Friday the 13th or, you know, uh, 80s slasher franchise entry while I'm working. And I'm not even looking at the screen at the moment. But as soon as that score hits, it's like it gives you the chills because you know uh, exactly what's about to happen, what you're watching. And it feels it, it gives you that familiarity with it. Well, yeah, it definitely does. And Manfredini, he was those soundtracks are masterful and iconic. And I think he did them all the way up to part six. I don't know if he did seven or beyond. And I think that's when the music at the very least started really, really going downhill. But whenever he was in charge of the score, I mean, not only did you just have that great iconic music, but come on, the such a simple thing, which became so, known i mean there could be people out there who don't know the first thing about friday 13th but if you go 
they know it's something scary. <laughs> they know, ooh, that means something. I'm not sure what, but ooh, something. So, I mean, I love... I Jason will always be my homeboy. And this franchise will always be my franchise. Yes, I love Halloween. Yes, I love Nightmare on Elm Street and all the others too. But this one is my gold standard. I love these movies completely. Even when they don't get to be all that good, they're still fun. And I can always enjoy them. Maybe not so much Jason Goes to Hell, but I try. <laughs> <laughs> now, one other big element on this one is the introduction of the Tommy Jarvis character, which kind of starts the Tommy Jarvis arc, which I think is will always live in infamy with Friday the 13th fans, played by... Corey Feldman, which I what about this one? He's probably what thirteen ish, maybe twelve or thirteen. I think it was about twelve. Okay, yeah, and uh, I I still kind of have questions about exactly what he was doing at the end. Uh, like, what was his? Did he just think, you know, if I replicate Jason as a kid, it'll it'll confuse him or make him sympathetic to me, maybe as like a kid victim. Um, but the special effects on that machete kill, something I, I paid extra attention to on this, on this watch is something that makes it so cool and detailed is like once the machete gets like slammed into the side of his head and he's like, he falls and he's kind of working his way, uh, through his head, you still see like the mouth and the eyes like moving yeah. around, like reacting to the pain, I guess, of it. And it, it, it's so cool to kind of detail and uh savini worked on this one correct oh yeah uh, mm-hmm. and when you have someone like savini on it that's the type of craftsmanship and detail you're gonna get i think that kind of stuff really makes a difference uh when it looks you know all practical and uh it's just amazing to me watching it oh yeah there's nothing uh like practical effects but that's another reason why this movie i think is such the height of the Friday Thirteenth franchise is because well you know it had Ted White as Jason and I think he's phenomenal. It was directed by Joseph Zito, and you know he's a guy who did a bunch of stuff. He did The Prowler, he did Missing in Action, he did Invasion USA, he did a whole bunch of movies. So he's a good, solid, real director. He's not just somebody who got the job because he knew somebody or nobody else was around. Uh, and then you have Tom Savini doing some of his best slasher kills that he's ever done. And that, you know, you put that in a bowl, you whip it up, and it just comes out perfect. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's about what it is. Uh, there, there was a – speaking on court film, I do want to hit something earlier. <laughs> that scene – and it, it's kind of – it probably would be considered a throwaway scene in a movie like this because it might not be something that – people think about much but there, there's a scene with Corey feldman or tommy jarvis i guess i should refer to him the character uh he he's like going to bed and he spots uh one of the girls in like the next cabin over or across the way and she's like getting undressed ready to get down with her boyfriend i think and oh yeah i feel like cory uh cory yeah uh, i mean as an actor the way he's he's depicted getting all super like excited and like hyped up because he's like about to see a topless girl, 
I feel that's so accurate to way how you would react as a 12 year old boy because it, it, it's like that excitement, slight danger to it, and the naughtiness of like I know I'm not supposed to be seeing this, but it's it's not like the creepy leering of like an older guy, you know, that's like creeping in on the uh, the girl next door. It, it's just that almost like preteen innocence of like yeah, I was gonna say there's a bit of innocence in it, and I mean it seems very real. Uh, I can't remember the first. Actually, I remember watching one of my neighbors. She wasn't naked or anything, but she was strutting around in her underwear with the window open and all that. And I, I wasn't perving on her, but I just happened to look and see her. And I was like, wow, <laughs> it was like, you know, the greatest thing ever. And I, I felt that hyper, you know, that, oh, this is so great. Oh, and then when his mom comes in and he instantly hits the bed and, fall, you know, pretends to fall asleep. And that look she gives him where she knows he's faking. But I, <laughs> yeah. the movie's just so fun. It's so good. It's not just a dumb slasher film because there's plenty of those out there. Uh, this is really exceptionally well made. And I'll yeah. stand by that. And I, I like how the mom kind of smirks at the situation, yeah. too. Like, he, she's not mad. And she's not like not only is she not mad at her son, but she's not like the typical adult going like, oh, what are those, you know, gross teenagers doing? Like she knows like that's just how it is. Exactly. She ain't mad. She ain't happy about it, but she understands. And, you know, she gives him a smirk and tucks him in and kisses him on the head and goes away. But I mean. Yeah, it seems very real. Another thing about this movie and there's some people who don't like this part, but I've always loved it. Is the whole down in the basement, he's killing me, he's killing me. <laughs> I love that because that is based off real events. Uh, I've heard two different stories. One was supposedly Joseph Zito had that idea from hearing a 911 call of somebody getting attacked. Like they were calling 911 as they were getting attacked. And they were saying, you know, crazy, stupid shit like that. Like, oh, he's stabbing me. Oh, oh, The other story is that was supposedly happened in a park somewhere. And it made the paper of, you know, they could hear the victim saying, he's stabbing me. He's stabbing me. I don't know which one of the two is correct. But I do know from watching way too many true crime shows on YouTube and podcasts and all that. When somebody is viciously mauling you, you say stupid shit. Everybody wants to think that'd be, oh, come on, you know, be all macho and you ain't so bad, you know, bring it. Or or maybe just scream. I mean, scream is like the default. Hmm. But there is that thing where just you can't comprehend what's going on. And so, yeah, he's killing me. I just like that because we haven't seen that before. And then you add in the fact that Jason is taking him apart with this little tiny garden trowel or something. They're not very sharp. They're not very big. So that's got to be one of the worst ways to die in any Friday the 13th movie. Just some guy ramming this tiny, dull implement into you again and again and again and again and again and having this big behemoth just hold you against the wall you know you're gonna die 
There's nothing you can do. And he's just whack, whack, whack. That is perhaps the most vicious kill out of any of the Friday 13th. Usually he's pretty quick. Usually, you know, whack, off goes a head, or, you know, he stabs somebody through a bed, or something like that. No, this one he took some time on. And I like that it happened to this character, because this was the first time we had a big macho guy character in a Friday 13th. I mean, he was he came out there to hunt Jason, to get revenge for his sister. So he was a good-looking guy. He had a machete and a knife and a rifle. He was camping in the woods. He was a man's man, and he was going to you know make Jason pay. And then he just totally goes to pieces and is just mauled to death. Well, he, he did attack a tent decently. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, uh, it's just like he was purposely put in there to make it look like he might do something. And Jason's just like, nope, <laughs> not on my watch. Yeah, it, it seems like in the remake they almost kind of borrowed the uh, yeah missing sister storyline or arc. Yeah, which was one of the things about the remake I really like because, I mean... Jason's been running around, and it actually doesn't make much sense if you do the chronolog. If you look at them in the time frame they're set, because Friday 13th 2, and then Friday 13th 3 is right after that, and Friday 13th 4 is right after that. So when did this guy know about his sister, and when did he get the newspaper articles to come hunting for Jason? And So that doesn't make sense, but you figure if you had a guy like Jason out there, Killing off teenagers, you know, at least 30 or 40 of them by the time this movie rolls around. Somebody's going to do something. It's not like, you know, this stuff happens in a void or something. So, uh, yeah, now I'm reading on an unrelated note, but related to the movie. Um, I'm reading uh, Kimberly Beck, who played Trish. According to trivia on imdb she did enough of her own stunts in the movie to qualify for a stunt performers union card i I didn't know that at all oh no that's cool well there's always that one scene where and it's taken right from texas chainsaw and probably even earlier movies than that Mm -hmm. where she goes running up the stairs and jason's right behind her and then she doesn't know where to go so she turns around and there's jason just standing there hulking out so she goes, nope, and she goes out the window. <laughs> and she jumps out the window, hits that railing, and falls down on the ground right in front of the front porch. I always think that's her. If that is a stunt man or a stunt woman, I guess, they got somebody who looks remarkably like her. But I wouldn't be surprised if that was Kimberly herself doing that. She also says her best scene in the entire film was cut out. It was where I find my mother and she's dead. But the producer and director decided that scene was too offensive. Mm, yeah. I, well, I could see where she would like, because that's, you know, very emotional for her. And, you know, she would she got she would get to be able to play it to the nines. So I could see where she would like that scene a lot. I wonder if it would ever get a restored or is included as deleted footage anywhere. I'm not sure. You have the latest box set, right? Yes. I don't think it's in there. Um and I don't think after this many years, unless somebody by some miracle happens to find it in some random pile of 
uh, clippings from 1984 uh, right, it's never yeah. going to be found. Because, you know, back then, nobody saved deleted scenes or cut scenes or anything. That just wasn't a thing. You made a movie for the screen. Once it was done, you were done. And so a lot of times, all those cut scenes and clippings, they were just destroyed outright. Yeah. Just because they didn't, you know, they had no need for them. They weren't going to do anything with them. Nowadays, they always save that stuff because, you know, you, everybody likes deleted scenes on DVDs and Blu-rays and all that stuff. But back in 84, no way in hell that anybody was thinking anything yeah. about that. <laughs> it seems like stuff like that was either destroyed outright or it gets discovered 30 years later in a random storage unit that was, you know, it was passed to like 15 people that had no interest. And, uh, Oh, look at this gold mine. We just found that no one really cared about and hopefully it's salvageable. Yeah, exactly. And there's like, there's like little to no explanation why that person has possession of it. No, I mean, you'll find it in an attic somewhere in Austria or something like that. And it's like, how, why did it get over here? And, you know, this is an addict of some baker. I mean, <laughs> but, you know, strange stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, obviously, you know, being at the in the time period that it was, I believe this was 84. Yep. There are some recognizable faces. I mean, Crispin Glover's probably uh, one of the more well-known. I mean, Corey Feldman eventually, but at the time, I, I don't know if this... This was was it introducing Corey Feldman? I can't remember if he had done anything prominent before this. I mean, he went in retrospect. Obviously, he went on to do stuff, and he might be the most famous person now that was in yeah. it. Um, but I, was Back to the Future the first one prior to this, or maybe after? I I can't remember. It's all in the same era. I want to say Back the, to the Future was after. I know Goonies was almost directly after this. Um, okay. So yeah, this did if not kickstart careers, it definitely they had much smaller bit part careers before this movie. Yeah, and I know one of the um I think her name was Samantha. She was a dark haired teenager. She was in she was one of like the hot girls in Weird Science. And obviously not Lisa, but uh, one of the high school girlfriends. Oh yeah. That's where I recognized her. Actually, I saw her in this first, and when I saw Weird Science eventually, I was like, hey, wasn't she in uh, one of the Friday the 13th movies? Um, but that's how it was back then, because I, I, I mean, your guys is, you and Jamie's, I mean, like your general age group, but I was probably the one that uh, was seeing these all like late 80s, early 90s on VHS when I could, you know, go ride my bike to the rental store and just, <laughs> okay, I'm going to rent like four of them today and marathon them out before i have to return them the next day or whatever but i i would start to notice like how many um of these actors and actresses that at the present time you know because this was you know early 90s they weren't doing huge things but whenever i rent movies from the 80s whether it was like teen comedies or slasher movies a lot of them tended to be in various ones with like various sized parts just depending on what movie it was well, real quickly, uh, Peter Barton, he's in this movie. He's the guy who gets his head crushed in the shower. Uh, he was also in Hell Night from 81, and that's a very good slasher flick as well, so he'd already had his turn facing slashers. But he was also in a TV show called The Powers of Matthew Starr. 
he was the main lead. Uh, that show only lasted for one year, so he had a pretty good career, if not before that, or if not after this, then definitely before it. And Kimberly Beck, I remember seeing her in oh, what the hell was it? Some old like before this, like high school hell or something like that, and. Uh, I know the uh, doctor, I think it was a doctor that tries to get with a nurse in the hospital. He was like in a police academy movie, maybe like multiple police academy movies. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, lots of random stuff like that. Now, maybe to wrap it up, because I mean, I, this is one of those movies where like we could probably go on, you know, if if we if this was the show to do it, we could easily go scene by scene. Oh, yeah. And talk about it in depth. But uh I kind of wanted to uh, wrap it up with a. I'm gonna I'm gonna pose a question, or maybe a couple questions. One on this, and one on one last thing. I know a lot of people give Shelley flack from part three, but as I was watching it this time, I gotta say I found this guy to be more of a jerk than Shelley. Um, it's uh, I can't remember the character's name for some reason. It's it's uh, Crispin Glover's character's friend, Teddy. Teddy, that's right. I actually like Teddy. And here's why. In all these classic slasher movies, they always had, like, one asshole character or one jerk character or, you know, something. Somebody that you kind of, like, root against. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, for good or ill, Shelley was that in part three just because he was annoying and all that. But even he had a good turn. He, you know, stood up for himself and all that. Teddy, he starts off as a jerk with this whole, oh, you're a dead fuck. And I should probably have asked in the beginning. We could swear on this, correct? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good. Yes, you can. Because I've already done that, but hey. And, uh, but yeah, he's like, oh, you're a dead fuck. And he's always teasing his friend. And he's getting all mad that, you know, the one twin he's after is going for his friend. And he's left out. And boo hoo hoo. But there's a scene where when Crispin Glover gets done doing the deed with his girl and he comes downstairs. And he's like, hey, look at this, and shows him the panties. Teddy seems actually happy for his friend. Like, legitimately. He's like, hey, man, congratulations. And he's not all bitter. He's not all butthurt. He's honest, like, yo, good on you. And I like that. And it, that kind of endears me to him a little bit. And the only price uh, Jimmy had to pay for that was uh, getting a corkscrew through the hand and... Uh... <laughs> well yeah but yeah i do agree um teddy it was interesting because he does kind of get that little character redemption where he does genuinely seem happy for his friend so yeah it it, it was important to mention that too because I, I think oftentimes in especially slasher movies once the character is established as being one thing um, other than like whodunit movies where you purposely are getting red herrings, but yeah. in like a movie like Friday the 13th, usually once a character is established as being a certain way, that's how they're going to be until they die. But Teddy actually does uh, have a little redemption there just as a, as a friend, I would say, you know? Yeah. So now the, I guess the last question, the end of the movie, um, does, uh, does that end in the hospital give any credence to Creighton Duke's theory that Jason jumps bodies? Because what's going on with Tommy Jarvis? <laughs> uh, 
I mean, and this you, is where you hang up the call on me and be like, okay, we're not talking anymore. <laughs> now, if you know about the history of the movie, that was supposed to be the end. Paramount never liked the Friday 13th series. They liked the money it made for them, but they always felt they were better than it. Oh, it's a silly, stupid little slasher. And he almost felt embarrassed when it would make a ton of money and be one of the most profitable movies of the year. And yet all their Oscar bait dramas that they'd bring out for that same year would do much worse. So this was supposed to be the final chapter. I know that's a joke now, but at the time it was supposed to be. So I think it was just them trying to do like a spooky, ambiguous type ending. Mm -hmm. Like Jason's dead, but it could still go on. I don't think he possessed him or anything like that. I just think Tommy flipped his lid when he had to butcher Jason. And, you know, either that look could mean he's so damaged that he's now going to become violent and horrible, or he's just very damaged at the, at that point in his life. And hopefully he gets some therapy and (laughs) he turns back into being a good natured, fun loving kid. But it was supposed to just be a dun 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 moment and not really mean anything. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Cause especially like uh, on this watch, I kind of, paid attention to how long the camera kind of held before like they did the freeze frame and it, it it wasn't very long after he opened his eyes that they like froze it out so i'm like oh he could have just been opening his eyes <laughs> and it's like a completely normal look on his face if you wanted to uh, make that claim <laughs> as far as him you know buzzing his head and you know jason don't you remember me i don't know where he would come up with that idea Maybe because he was reading all the newspaper articles, they might have mentioned that he had some severe mental issues before he drowned and all that. Maybe he thought he could then fool him or at least confuse him. Because, again, Jenny does that in part two. Now, she had a child psychology, you know, background and all that. Mm -hmm. But it's clear they know, at least from the legends, who Jason is, what he's all about, and the fact that you know, he has some issues. <laughs> so maybe Tommy thought the same thing. You know, he didn't have a sweater to put on and pretend like he's his mom. So he did the next best thing. And, hey, I'm you. Don't you remember? As a little kid, we were picked on. And, you know, it did just enough to confuse the big J man that, you know, Trish got the jump on him. Yeah, and I always kind of found it kind of funny that at the end of the next one, five, they almost kind of redo the, is Tommy uh, Jarvis going to be Jason in the hospital? Like, except he has the mask and a knife, right? But yeah. And then and then kind of being a dream, right? And then in part six, he's back to being normal. So, I mean, that right. is obviously something they wanted to explore. But I think, well, I'm I'm pretty sure that after part five, it really didn't make <laughs> like all the Friday 13th movies up to this point kept making more money. Part two made more than part one. Part three made more than part two and part four made the most out of all of them. But then when he did part five and it was fake Jason and everybody, you know, flipped their lid, um, it did really bad. So I think after that movie, there was no way in hell they were going to have a Friday 13th movie without Jason. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, Halloween 3 and what they did with Michael Myers. 
well, you know, yeah, after, and you, after that movie, Big Mike was going to be in every Halloween ever made. Yeah, and you could almost make the argument that uh, Jason Lives Part 6 was like an overcorrection to not having Jason, because then they're like, okay, you want Jason back? We'll bring him back and watch what we're going to do with him, right? Yeah. Well, that was the mandate for that movie, bring Jason back. Uh, they really didn't know how they were going to do it, but they had all these different screenwriters give their best shot at bringing him back. And they finally found one they liked and said, yes, do this. Yeah, and it's funny because you, you watch it now, like as an adult, as far as how he was brought back in six. And it doesn't seem overly complicated at all because we've seen so many movies just do some type of resurrection angle. But at the time, it was probably like, oh, shit, this is like so cool what they're doing. <laughs> well, I mean, there's even the Friday 13th franchise is full of contradictions. And part five even has one where they say Jason was cremated. He's nothing but ash. <laughs> but then when you, know, you can't resurrect ash, so <laughs> they suddenly have him buried in a cemetery with everybody else. So, yeah, and maybe they were wrong in part five. Maybe they thought he was cremated and he never was. But whatever. It just the point is they don't let the small stuff get in the way. <laughs> Whether Jason died as a kid in the pond or was just hiding in the woods or he's been cremated or not. We don't care. We're just here to tell a, a Friday 13th story. Yeah. If, if you're going to watch a, a Friday the 13th part six, you're probably not concerned about that kind of stuff. <laughs> And I got to say, that's one thing about this franchise. Like, you look at Halloween, and everybody loses their mind every single Halloween based on what his mask looks like. And that's it. It's a pale white mask with some hair. Done. But everybody's like, oh, it doesn't look right. Oh, it looks stupid. Oh, it looks like that. And I agree with that. But when it's all said and done, it's just a silly mask. But it, because it doesn't look like the original, people just bitch and moan. The Friday 13th films, <laughs> not only does the mask, I mean, hell, he didn't have a mask in the first one. He had a potato sack in the second one. In the third one, he got the hockey mask. In the fourth one, it was different. In the fifth one, new guy, new mask. In the sixth one, it was different than the fourth one. In the seventh one, I mean, the mask, Jason's mask is always evolving too but nobody seems to care. I've never heard anybody go, that's not what his mask looked like in the last movie. It's just a hockey. Hell, Jason himself, they always have the unmasking so you can see Jason's <laughs> hideous, deformed face. And that's always changing between each movie. But yeah. <laughs> you never hear anybody going, oh, he didn't look that way in the last one. It's just, oh, he's a big, scary son of a bitch. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all we need. It's a pretty resilient mask all the times it's been, like, battered with something. Oh, yeah. Or just how conveniently he'll find one. Like, oh, what is the one where they're in a houseboat and Jason's in the water and the boyfriend plays a prank on the girl dressing up as Jason. And then... Oh, uh like part eight. Yes. And then Jason just happens to get resurrected, happens to get on that particular boat and finds a mask that, you know, reminds him of his old mask. How convenient, but, you know, who cares? <laughs> True. Yeah, I mean, at that, yeah, if, if, if I would say if a franchise is successful enough to have that many entries, you're really not going to sweat the small little details like that. Like, there is a time and place 
to like break down every little thing and go over it for the fun of it. But uh, for the most part, if you're wanting to go see the movies, I don't think you're going to necessarily gripe about those small elements. Just give me Jason killing people in over-the-top crazy ways, and uh, you'll have a happy uh, viewer. Yeah. That's why I didn't hate the remake. Um, in fact, I think the remake's better than some of the official ones that happened later. Like, again, Jason Goes to Hell. Uh, I'm not a big fan on Jason Takes Manhattan. I think it's painfully boring. But uh, in the remake, it was a big dude in a mask in the woods killing horny teenagers. That's all I need. You know, I'm not looking for Shakespeare. You know, just give me that and I'll be a happy guy. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, speaking of happy guy, you made me a happy host by coming to uh, talk about Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter. But uh, why don't you make um, our viewers happy now? And I know you mentioned uh, the shows you're doing, but let's uh, let everyone know exactly where they can be found and maybe like what's uh, up with the latest episodes. Okay, well, you made me a happy guest by inviting me. So thanks <laughs> a lot. It was fun talking to you again. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, you know, we'll have to get on each other's other shows in the future, too. <laughs> As for myself, we're we're pretty much just doing one show right now, but it's very uh, we are pretty consistent on doing it like twice a month. And then we have a Patreon that we always put at least one or more shows in just for the patrons. So we're doing like three to four shows a week now. And that's all for or all under the horror in the House of Salmons. And you can find that wherever there's podcasts. We're on everything. Uh, Stitcher, Apple, whatever the hell. If you can find a podcast, you can find that. But we're also hosted on Anchor. So if you can't find us anywhere else, you can find us there. And that's horror in the House of Salmons. S-A-M-M-O-N-S. It's our last name. <laughs> Sweet. Well, yeah, between the uh, show that goes out to everyone and all the Patreon episodes, it sounds like you're keeping the content flowing. Yeah, and we have ideas like we just recorded the W episode for season two of the ABCs. Uh, we've pretty much decided when we get done with Z, we're going to do something else for the next season of the show. We don't know exactly what yet. We have a couple ideas bouncing around, but... We intend to change things and, you know, just do different things as it comes to us, as we feel like doing it. So hopefully it'll help keep things fresh and hopefully everybody will, you know, keep coming back for it will always be about horror movies. You know, that's the one constant. Cool. Well, now that everyone knows where to find you. Please go listen and support Brian Sammons and his podcast and all the other endeavors that he may post about. Uh, you can find him on all the social medias as well. So just uh, probably just search his name and you'll you'll find him pop up in various places. But yeah, once again, Brian, thank you so much for uh, coming on. I know we've we've collaborated on many things over the years, but it has been a little bit of yeah. time since we did something together last. So thanks so much for coming on. Well, again, man, thanks for having me. This was fun. And yeah, we need to do some more stuff together uh, sooner rather than later. <laughs>